to Voices from the Front Lines, your national movement building show. I'm your host, Derek Mann. I'm here, as always, with Channing Martinez, the co-host, producer, and everything else that makes the show happen. We work on everything together, and we're excited about today's show. The first thing we have is a guest named Nathan Thanky. He is a person of Irish descent who works with a group called Demand Climate Justice, Nathan's going to talk to you about the forthcoming, uh, it's called COP26, Congress of the Parties to talk about climate change in Glasgow, Scotland on the 31st of October through the 12th of November. And all the people of the third world are going to fight for climate justice and the United States and the EU are going to fight against it. So that'll be a very interesting conversation. The second will be a conversation with Channing Martinez and myself about the recently received data from the MTA again and again, a level of anti-blackness in the enforcement of everything, unfair evasions on the so-called code of conduct. And we think we have some beginning resonance with some people in the MTA that at least want to admit, as we've been saying, the MTA is anti-black. And we have to stop anti-blackness at the MTA. That'll be the second conversation. And in between, we're happy we're going to start having uh, at least one music break that's not just a break, but a song. And Ch- Channing and I both came up with one of our favorites, Stimula by Yuma Sakura, which I believe means the cold train. So it'll go Nathan, and then Yuma Sakela, and then Channing. Uh In between will also be a discussion of the funding of KPFK, which is an ongoing conversation. We are, again, in what's called Fund Drive. But we're very happy that we have the support of the station to go ahead and do our show. And we want to both do our show and raise money for the station at the same time. We don't want to be preempted. We're not going to be preempted, which is great. But in return... We need you, our voices listeners, to say, in return for great programming, yes, I will give money when you say 818-985-5735. I get it. Uh, I will contribute because at the end of the day, this will count. 
So with that, uh, let's start with the climate justice conversation. And Nathan, thank you. So let me give you some basic background. A lot of you know Greta Thunberg, who's, you know, famous and for all the right reasons, by the way. And you know about all these climate marches and climate days and climate days of action. But I hope you also know that none of that is accomplishing anything. Hmm. That their marches, the system lets you march. And then the leading stock on the stock market right now are the oil companies. They're doing great because we're so far away from solar. We're so far away from alternate energy that while everybody's talking about alternate energy, there is a, an, a so-called energy crisis, and the coal companies and the oil companies are just raking in billions again. So we've got a serious problem. Now, the biggest problem is the United States. A lot of you may be mad at British Petroleum and stuff like that, but the biggest issue is the United States controls the world, the United States controls the United Nations, and the United Nations, the United States is adamant to prevent the third world from setting the climate agenda. In 2015, Channing Martinez, myself, Manuel Criollo, Ashley Franklin, and Barbara Lanhond went to Paris to see firsthand the United Nations Framework Climate Change Conference with such great hope. And what we saw is President Obama. Uh, through John Kerry and others, wrecking the conference. So this is a preface to, is Joe Biden, and again, John Kerry, who even told, oh, isn't it so exciting we got John Kerry back? No, it's not exciting, folks. It's very dangerous. So I wrote an article in Counterpunch called The United Nations Climate Change Conference, A Victory for President Obama, A Defeat for the Planet, and a Defeat for the Movement. Just going to read you two paragraphs, and then we're going to listen to Nelson's thank you. So I, this was about what he did there. President Obama has upped his game in Paris to truly become the world's most intimidating political figure. He's manipulated the resistance of small island and African nations who see him as a sympathetic figure, if not really a friend. His plea that the world must help him avert defeat in front of the racist Republicans an argument that baffles the mind on its face has had some resonance, of course, combined with the U.S. having 800 military bases, economic incentives, a.k.a. bribes, threats, and a nuclear arsenal. Obama used that credibility and good faith and goodwill to bring attention to himself and the U.S. as the savior of the planet, at the same time knowing that U.S. actions will bring inordinate suffering into the world, especially to nations and peoples of Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the small island states. This is a victory for Obama, but a terrible defeat for the civil rights and climate justice movements. But far more important, a terrible defeat for the planet, and yes, a monumental challenge to dissenting voices who are fighting to get our point of view heard, let alone our plans carried out in history. The dissenting voice you're going to hear in a minute or two is that of Nelson Thanke, representing, again, Demand Climate Justice, who are organizing to go to Glasgow to once again fight for the right thing. The second thing, for those of you who care, and I have to admit I'm kind of mad at everybody because I don't think most people even want to get into the weeds, as it were, of what it's going to take to change things. So I'm going to read you what happened 
in 2015 in my article. You can get it up on Counterpunch. You can also get it on a fight for the soul of the cities.com website. The United States prevented any language for climate reparations. The U.S. representatives, John Kerry and Todd Stern, carrying out President Obama's orders, adamantly opposed any language to hold the U.S. and European Union responsible for the industrial counter-revolution of their own making and the astounding role the U.S. has played and is still playing in warming the planet. Now, nations of the third world have been calling on the global north to pay for what's called loss and damages, so that those most responsible for the climate crisis pay reparations to those who are suffering its catastrophic impacts, in particular the nations of Africa, Asia, Latin America, and smaller states. But John Kerry, who once spoke out against U.S. war crimes in Vietnam, threatened a U.S. walkout if there was any language in the text about loss and damages. The Obama administration's victory exceeded those reprehensible objectives because the final document in Paris states that any discussion of loss and damages does not involve or provide a basis for any liability or compensation. Just one more thing, and we'll get to, to Nathan, is that when I was in Paris, I heard African countries say, we are mining the dirtiest coal because that's what we got. We want to use solar. We want to use wind. We have no money to do so. If you don't pay us these reparations, how are we supposed to either build our own or buy it even back from you? That's the issue, that the United States wants no liability. So with that, we had a very nice call with Channing Martinez, Barbara Lott Holland, uh, myself, and Nathan Thankey. And this is part of the excerpts from that call. So I have a question. Um, when Barbara and I went to Bonn, you know, in the two prep comms, we got very excited about the Green Climate Fund because it was something, we're looking for things that we can do to make demands on the U.S. government, right? Even if they're not one, that the people know there is such a demand, which right now there's just, you can't imagine that, Half the people don't know what back in Paris, and the other half don't know what Kerry's doing, and I'm in the other half. <laughs> I know we're back in Paris, but I have no idea what Kerry and those guys are up to. So we got excited about the Green Climate Fund, uh, and we were proposing the U.S. itself contribute $10 billion a year. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what happens, what is happening with the Green Climate Fund? Is it getting funded? What are some of the fights in it that's important to us? Yeah, it is getting funded. It's gone through, I think it's in its uh, uh, second replenishment cycle. So there's a big fight um, sort of around 2000, and, well, after, after Copenhagen, um, and then in Cancun in 2010, Durban 2011, to establish this, and as I said before, to have uh, a mechanism uh, to deliver climate finance that is not underneath the World Bank, either the Global Environment Facility, the GEF, or some of the other uh, funds that, that they had set up. And that, that's for the obvious reason that the World Bank is not a, um, you know, it's not a democratic institution uh, and does not serve the needs and interests of most of the world, uh, most of the world's countries. So Green Climate Fund was an important fight to have and an important thing to win because of that. 
of course, once it got set up, then there were a whole set of other things to fight around, including what kinds of projects would get funded, including things like the composition of the board, some of the governance issues. The, the fight to replenish it now uh, is on. Um, this is one of them, the big political fights at the UNFCCC. So although the target of 100 billion um, wasn't ever met, when you look at more critical analysis, uh, even from the likes of Oxfam, over what has actually been delivered and whether that has been additional to existing aid budgets, Right. Um, they, they say it's actually a, a much smaller percentage, uh, even of, um, of of what the donors say they've they've given. Just hold that point for a second, Channing. Um, <laughs> you know what, and Barb, I know you know this, but this is what we're finding in LA that they they make a pledge to us, and then they say they're going to add more money, but then they count the money they already have given. So what you're saying is, Oxfam is saying, is this new money? Or you're just repackaging money that you've already allocated and claim it's part of the hundred million. Is that correct? Exactly that. Yeah. Is the Green Climate Fund the one? If there is a hundred billion, is this going to be the institution that is the main institution that will receive it? Yeah, and I mean, hopefully, the whole idea with the Green Fund was to tr to Green Climate Fund was to try and um, avoid having an incredibly fragmented right. uh, landscape where the procedures for application were all different and were also constantly changing and where, you know, the, the, it was easier to get different numbers about what was actually overall, like what was the overall uh, figure for climate finance globally being mobilized. So developing countries fought quite hard to have the Green Climate Fund be like the fund for climate change. So the hundred billion should be going through that. What is the U.S. up to now that Kerry's in charge? We know he was terrible. The cop told him terrible and a hatchet man. So what's going on with, what, what do we do about the United States is our slogan. You know that where that came from? At the World Summit on Sustainable Development, uh, where I was there with Gio Gling and everybody, uh, what was that in uh, Johannesburg? Uh, the mics were on, somebody didn't know it. And one of the leaders said, what are we gonna do about the United States? Like they, they're wrecking everything. So that's now our slogan. What are we gonna do about the United States? So what are we gonna do about the United States? What's carry up to? What are the plans? What role is the US playing there? And then to you, Barbara. Yeah, like, a, I mean, a leopard doesn't change its spots, I guess. Um, <laughs> but it's a, you know, in some ways, it was almost easier in the Trump years uh, at the UNFCCC um, because it was just very clear uh, to everybody that the US was a bad faith actor um, sure. because they would tell you exactly, you know, well, there was no, it wasn't very sophisticated. Um, but it was also quite, yeah, quite upfront, um, you know, like we're going to host events with the coal industry. We're going to be gung-ho about it. Um, we're not going to try and disguise any of the facts. We're even going to deny the, the, the basic uh, physical science and, or like at least question it. So in those from 2016 to 2020, although, you know, a lot of the 
um, the climate commentariat and and the NGO sphere, I think, lost their collective minds a little bit because they just couldn't <laughs> fathom like how we had arrived at that, and, like how the United States had um, managed to elect Trump. I think they didn't really have a serious, in my opinion, a serious analysis of of like why that came to pass. Right. Um, so basically, they just couldn't couldn't fathom it, and and just like had a nearly physical like rejection of of, of that. Um, so I guess I, I guess that's um, something that was similar within like the democratic establishment and like the liberal uh, elites in within the country. So I think internationally there was something similar um, because everyone's like, oh my god, I can't believe that they would leave the Paris Agreement. This is so, which you know just kind of ignored the reality that when you look at the record, the United States has been a terrible influence in um, climate policy internationally, as well as like, you know, not it's not limited to climate and environment. There are wreckers across the board, as as you know, um, from, you know, going to the likes of the, the WSSD uh, back in like the early 2000s. Um, so that influence is, has been uh, a constant, like it's a mainstay, I would say, of, of the UNFCCC. It's one of the like the rules of the game is that the United States is the worst. It's the biggest villain. Um, no matter who else does anything, I mean, like Australia would run you close. Canada would try. Um, you get Saudi Arabia doing something that just like is really bad optics and and makes for a, a quick headline. But like the story is and always has been that the United States will undermine anything that even looks like um, ambitious uh, climate policy. They, as you said earlier, managed to include the infamous liability clause in the accompanying decision to the Paris Agreement, which said, you know, we will not be held liable for any damages that arise from climate change that could be attributed to us. You know, right. you say overall the United States is responsible for X, it's like 30% of all emissions over all time ever. So therefore, maybe if there's um, you know a mega typhoon and it causes you know whatever amount of of damages in a country, that the United States should bear thirty percent of the cost of that. So they really, really, really don't want that to happen. The conversation on loss and damage continues, and they continue to engage in it um, to try and make sure that that never happens. But ultimately, that's that's where it will lead to. We can have, um, as we will have in in Glasgow, you know, policy fights about, yeah, about quite detailed things like what should the international mechanism on loss and damage look like, and how should it operate, and what should it do? Should we set up another network, um, like it's called the Santiago Network, um, and what should be its functions? And what are the inputs and who can contribute? And like, there's all of these kinds of things that you, you can, you know, have an opinion about all the different options for each of those. But I think ultimately where it does lead to is compensation. Um, and I think um, in the slightly, you know, to get out of the policy sphere a little bit in slightly good news, um, there are many groups here in the UK that, don't engage at the, at the technical level and policy, but have taken it upon themselves to say, 
No, actually, this this is the hook in the negotiations for us to talk about reparations for for all of it, right? Not just for um, the climate debt, but for like the whole past eight hundred years, um, or you know, six hundred years um, for this European uh, process uh, and project of colonization. So that's that's good because i think we're bringing climate change into that frame or sort of shifting things and uh, a lot of groups are are taking that as, as their cue to like really mobilize very different um actors uh, in different sectors and try to draw the connections between you know the climate movement um which as we all know ha and have our own like you know internal critique of uh, for unfortunate reasons, is like tended to be very middle class, very white, very liberal, um, and like missing kind of a fundamental systemic critique of the economic system and how it's racialized. So yeah, um, lots of damage goes on, but the US did insert that that, that clause. They they do they they do this every year. They kind of give a little bit look like you're going to give a little bit um and then you know pull it back um they try more often than not to shift the blame i think this is the the overarching strategy is to delay their own action while they know that emissions in the developing world are rising and, and will continue to rise because that is the path of development that those countries are on if they also simultaneously have a trade war with them as they're currently doing with China um, while also continuing to emit a lot it overall shrinks the you know and you probably like you know Martin Kaur and I've read some of his work but it shrinks the whole atmospheric space um, basically it shrinks the possibility and the opportunity for developing countries to develop on the basis of fossil fuels um, but it also limits their ability to develop by any other means because they of course keep the intellectual property rights of um i mean yeah not just the vaccines as we've seen the global north countries do in, in the past two years but of of all technologies uh, including those that would help with help fight and, and tackle climate change so it's a really like multi-pronged approach that they take um but the end result of it is that i, I think developing countries are really limited in what they can do. They're stuck between, you know, a rock and a hard place, so to speak, uh, because they're feeling the full force as are, you know, communities all around the world. It's not like this is limited to, to the global south, but they're feeling the full force of climate breakdown at one degree. We're on track for two and a half degrees. Uh, we're talking about one and a half degrees. We've got all these feedback loops that, that will mean that those impacts will, you know, not they'll not see a linear progression. They'll, they'll get exponentially worse. Um, at the same time, they're not able to um, adapt because there's limits to the adaptation. There's also they don't have the funding for it, the resources. If you take resources and divert it to adaptation, you have to take them from somewhere else. So that could be from hospitals, from education, uh, from basic infrastructure. Uh, from other economic uh, like areas of the economy. Um, so really being squeezed quite a lot. 
while at the same time, of course, being, you know, told, oh, now you need to stop um, digging up oil. We'll continue to dig up oil because, you know, you, you get these crazy lines like we have clean coal. Um, you would rather have clean American coal or clean Norwegian or British oil than the dirty Nigerian or dirty, dirty Filipino coal and oil. So this is the narrative that they then develop um, and which a lot of the, the media are either too servile or too stupid to, to really challenge. So basically, to, you know, to summarize the great work of Nathan Thanke and the demand climate justice and all the great people, the first thing is we are asking the governments of the world, as he is, that they have these intended goals, and these intended goals must become mandatory. Secondly, there must be loss and damages paid to the third world. The third is the climate is moving towards 3%, let alone 1.5. The strictest enforcement has to be begun with the United States, and there has to be penalties for noncompliance. And it all hinges on giving the third world power at the United Nations, and that's what demand climate justice is all about. On Voices from the Frontlines, we're always trying something new. And while this is a fun drive, and we encourage you to call 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK, this week we wanted to introduce a new segment on the show in which we will be listening to an entire set uh, an entire song that just illuminates the beauty of the movement. And this week, we, meaning me and Eric, just thought that we would play Stimula by Hugh Masekela. Hugh, uh, his album came out in 1974 as part of the I Am Not Afraid album. And Stimula, otherwise the Coal Train, talks about the struggles in South Africa and the whole South Africa region of workers going on the coal trains and suffering through terrible conditions all in order to survive. It's a very beautiful song, but also a very revolutionary song. And then for those of you who don't know, go check out Hugh Masekela. Uh, you know, he just passed away in 2018. He was a great revolutionary uh, artist and singer. So with that, here's Stimula. that comes from Namibia and Malawi. There's a train that comes from Zambia and Zimbabwe. There's a train that comes from Angola and Mozambique. From Lesotho, from Botswana, from Swaziland. From all the hinterlands of Southern and Central Africa, this train carries young and old African men who are conscripted to come and work on contract in the golden mineral mines of Johannesburg and its surrounding metropoli. 16 hours or more a day for almost no pay. Deep, deep, deep 
belly of the earth when they are digging and drilling for that shiny mighty evasive stone or when they dish that mishmash mash food into their iron plates with the iron shovel or when they sit in their stinky funky filthy flea ridden barracks and hostels they think about the loved ones they may never see again because they might already have been forcibly removed from where they last left them or wantonly murdered in the dead of night by roving and marauding gangs of no particular origin we are told they think about their lands and their herds that were taken away from them with the gun and the bomb and the tear gas and the gatling and the cannon and when they hear that choo-choo train a chugging and a pumping and a smoking and a pushing and a pumping and a crying and a steaming and a chicken and a what? They always curse and they curse the coal train, the coal train that brought them to Johannesburg.
Zimela, Sihamba Hanga Malate, Siveleta La Kupayi, Sangela Tawa Kuka, Hebabe, what is his You know, the uh, 
besides I'm speechless, uh, to understand how great Yuma Sakela and Miriam Akiva and other South African artists were. You can feel, the, I mean, if that does not draw you to a revolution, the revolutionary power of and brilliance, and you can feel the African revolution in the other system. So we're honored to play it, and it's going to help us fight the MTA, and it's going to help us fight the U.S. in Glasgow. It's a new day here at KPFK and on Voices from the Front Lines. I know you're not used to this format of a show on Voices from the Front Lines. Already you've heard two segments, and I would argue a third, which is the fun drive. Call 818-985-5735 to support KPFK today. The first segment you heard was a conversation between Eric Mann and Nathan Thinky from Demand Climate Justice about COP26 and the United nation's framework convention on climate change and the struggles over reparations and especially climate reparations for the third world in the second segment which is a very new segment and we hope will be a very exciting segment was just revolutionary music to feed our souls we needed it we loved it and i hope you loved it too and in the third segment again Call 818-985-5735. It is so important that we support KPFK. But with all these segments, we're not done yet. In this next segment, I speak with Eric Mann about a very exciting development on our campaign for free public transportation and no police on metro buses and trains. Stop racial profiling of black passengers. We met with the CEO today. We got some very exciting news for you that we'll announce. But before we get to that, here's the dilemma that we're going through. We both want to have very political programming, um, but we also want to do a fundraising appeal for KPFK. And so, you know, we are on here every week. I'm on here every week. And every time I get a report, I come back with that report on racism at the Metro, racism at LUSD. Uh, thankful victories at LUSD and some victories at Metro. And in my opinion, it's very good programming. And it's the only station that's reporting on this programming and reporting on the movement in such a way that gives the movement its own voice. KPFK is so important to us, and I know it's very important to you. But in exchange for that programming, we need you to dig deep into your pockets and be as generous as you can to continue to sustain this movement and, and to continue to sustain KPFK. So call 818-985-5735, 818-985-KPFK. All right, so now let's get to the Metro. The great news today is we had a promising meeting with CEO Stephanie Wilkins and we're trying to be careful because we have, it's not quite public yet, everything that we agreed on. Um, but I can say, to frame it, is that this is one of the best meetings I've ever had with any elected official from the Metro. <laughs> um, and as you know already from Stephanie Wiggins' own words, that she's a lot more progressive and forward-thinking than the history of all Metro CEOs um, in total. Um, 
except for some really great CEOs during the consent degree, which Eric has talked about on uh, KPFK. Uh, so the core of it is that we requested data back in last year. We requested it three times. Um, we re-requested it again right when Stephanie Wiggins uh, got into office. Uh, her and her uh, chief of staff, um, Nicole England, worked like fiends to get us uh, that data, even though we had requested it from the previous CEO, Phil Washington, several times. And each time he said, I'll get it to you, I'll get it to you. Uh, this is different for Stephanie Wiggins because we requested it once. We thought we didn't hear anything, but every meeting that we had that Stephanie Wiggins was in, she made sure, or her staff made sure to say, and don't worry, we know your request is in. We're going to get your work, your you the data. We're working on it. Uh, so they worked like fiends to get us the data. And, you know, we've had this, we've had data of uh, 2016 to what 2010 um, before, um, and all of that data said what we all know that Black people made up 50, 55 percent, and 60 percent of tickets and arrests. And so I was partially not surprised when I got this whole subset of data. And you know, in 2019, 2018, 2020, Black people make up 53 percent of all citations. Uh, more than fifty percent of all arrests, and you know, to some of your, to somewhat of my surprise, but not really, um, some of the top things that people were being arrested for or ticketed for was having their foot on a seat. In twenty twenty, I think more than thirteen hundred black folks got citations for taking up more than one seat. This is in the middle of COVID. When you're supposed to have six foot distance, uh, social distancing. And so if someone's getting on the bus coughing, naturally, you might scoot over and say, nope, I'm going to take this extra seat. Please do not sit next to me. That is totally fine. That is, in fact, by law, uh, supposed to be allowed by the CDC. Um, And yet black people are targeted for that. Um, And so, you know, that's the framing. We have this data. We met with her this morning at the with the with all of this data in mind to say what are we going to do because even as you're cutting down the tickets even as we've moved to unarmed fair checkers the system itself is racist and by default they just keep targeting black folks uh and so i'm going to pass it to eric um to jump in here um we had a great meeting and i think eric is going to talk in some more detail about it Well, I think the thing that we want our listeners to understand is that we have had a consistent set of demands since the Bus Writers Union was formed. And that is a real strength of us that uh, CEO Wiggins kept acknowledging. We know you've been calling on this for 20 years. We know. Eight years ago, you talked to us about it. And that's important to know we represent bus riders. We don't cut any deals. We represent black bus riders and Latino bus riders, and we want 100% of their civil rights. So specifically, this is what we want. The first thing is if, if any policy continues to have an anti-black outcome, you have to end the policy. You can't keep trying to reform the policy because the anti-black outcome is the policy. That's what you are trying to do, is have an anti-black outcome. So if 
we have to repeat, black people are 8 to 9% of the city of Los Angeles. They're 19% of the rioters, which is a good thing, but for bad reasons, you know. It means that black people are transit-dependent and so low-income that they double their actual population and even more to get on the trains and buses. But in return, the MTA more than doubles their arrests, their citations, their humiliations. So if you're looking at a percentage of arrests in 2020, black people 56%, as we said to uh, C.O. Wiggins, uh, that constitutes genocide, not disproportionality. And we read from the United Nations uh, statute on genocide and the wonderful book, We Charge Genocide by William L. Patterson. Now, there's a lot of things. I, I Sometimes I don't know who's out there, who's listening, but it's hard. Hard. You know, you walk into an MTA meeting, you say, we charge genocide. They go, yeah, yeah. Next, but we charge genocide. It means that when a government carries out policies that are so hostile to a people as to weaken and destroy their will, as to drive them out of areas where they are, to cause undue suffering to a people based on race, that's what genocide means. Now, t- without... Uh, C.O. Wiggins did not make any commitments except to begin by saying anti-blackness is a very serious problem. That's a big thing. We have never gotten any CEO to say the word anti-blackness, to acknowledge it. Because once we acknowledge it, we have a chance to change it. I believe that. And if the CEO was willing to say, we have this problem, and put that in front of the board, then what would be the solution? Well, the first thing is, you just can't enforce the fares. Forget about, is it free, is it $26? You cannot enforce it because enforcement is itself racist. So charge whatever you want. Let people go in on the honor system. We don't mean, I'll take that back. We don't mean charge whatever we want. So get it down to $26. Get it down to free. But until then, nothing is enforced on the trains and buses. Now, I want to hear a fact that we understood today that we won through negotiation with Phil Washington and Stephanie Wiggins that we both parties want you to hear. We went to them about seven years ago and said, you have armed police enforcing uh, fare problems on the, on the uh, bus and train." Because they're armed, they have access to people's record. This is nothing more than stop and frisk. First, you you know give them a ticket for fare evasion, and that opens up the door. They agreed to that, and they said that that no armed uh, MTA personnel will be involved in fare collection. That is a big improvement, and we really appreciate that. And both parties are trying to acknowledge when we do get something done that we want to say that. However, it doesn't stop. As she said, uh, the facts are that they hired many more black and Latino people to enforce the policy. They still enforced it anti-black. So proving that the anti-blackness is so deep in our society that when you give anybody authority over black people, they carry it out badly, including black people. 
So we want free public transportation, no police on the buses and trains, uh, no enforcement of the existing fare, and no exist, uh, enforcement of the so-called codes of conduct, which we call the black codes. Chang, why don't you do, tell them a little bit about the codes of conduct. Sure. So there is this codes of conduct that Metro has. And what I understand from it, according to today's meeting, is that it's under the jurisdiction of the office of the inspector general. Um, Now, this is not the L.A. County office of inspector general. This is not the L.A. City office of inspector general. This is Metro board hiring their own uh, inspector general Um, and. What was explained is they did that in the 90s to uh, manage mismanagement of funds, which, you know, we can argue is still going on at the Metro, but that's a whole other conversation. But Uh, we agree it is. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So all of that to say that uh, the, the, I almost want to call them black codes because they are, um, but the codes of conduct are managed by that person, right? And it's everything from no eating on the trains and buses, no drinking on the trains and buses, no smoking, no playing loud music, no feet on your seat, on your, no putting your foot on the seat, um, no, no coming onto the buses and trains without any shoes or clothing, no excess baggage, no carts allowed. I remember that was a very big one because they're targeting uh, older women, actually, mainly women in their 40s and up who go grocery shopping and they bring their cart full of groceries on the buses and trains because that's how you get your groceries. So they're targeting them with uh, with tickets, as an example, right? Um, no excess baggage, no foul smells. I mean, everything you can think of. Um, they're literally black codes on the buses and trains. And you know, just one thing that I'll point to is you might remember the story of Selena Lechuga. Um, there was a woman that was on the bus, on the train, and she had her the tip of her toe allegedly on the seat. And uh, the officer came over and basically yanked her off the train. Selena came to her defense. She They yanked Selena off the train as well, slammed both of them on the floor and roughed them up and then took them into court and charged them with some bull crap charge of, like, interfering with the rest or whatever they charged them with, right? And so, you know, that's just one story. This is the daily life of the bus riders that's going on today. So what we're trying to get to is that the it's a, it's another example. If you hire, um, what's the person called again? I'm sorry, the... Uh, inspector General. The Inspector General. Notice he's a general or she's a general. Uh, they bring him in allegedly to stop massive, corruption of billions of public dollars and they give her the authority to arrest people for having a sandwich who can't even afford the the fare. So here's what we're asking you as KPFK listeners. Uh, They're related. You know, the 818-985-5735 is how to give money to the station and the info at the Strategy Center is the way to get involved in the movement and Channing at the Strategy Center dot org. Uh, we have a chance to get the MTA first of all to not enforce the black codes, and we are going to call them that. There they are, the black codes. Because again, 
55% of people arrested are black. After slavery, what was done, it was horrible, is because Jim Crow was still operative, is they created black codes, which meant no sandwich, no drinking, no, no baggage cart, no standing. Lawyering was a, a newly created, just meant hanging around a black person. Well, if you have no job and you have no home, where do you go? So there is a crisis developing in the city. There are still board members, no matter what they say, that are all about building rail lines and trying a little bit to deal with social justice. The other board members, and particularly Mike Bonin, have really, Bonin, have really uh, prioritized this, and we have higher hopes for um, Holly Mitchell, who has been not as strong as she should be. So we urge you to work with the Bus Riders Union. We're going to be putting out information about stop anti-blackness at the MTA, stop the black codes at the MTA, and for you to organize, again, your church, synagogue, uh, union, neighbors, to work with the Bus Riders Union. Uh, Channing Martinez is our main spokesperson, as is Barbara Lott Holland at the BRU, and they're doing a great job. So 818-985-5735, give money to KPFK, and info at the Strategy Center and Channing at the strategycenter.org to join this movement to stop anti-blackness and to stop the black codes on the MTA. And you know what? We're going to win. I just feel it. It's the same thing. I just know you do it. I've done this my whole life. You do it, and it's hopeless, and you're depressed, but you still do it. It doesn't matter. As I explained to CEO Wiggins, if I meet someone on the bus who's been arrested or harassed or kicked off, that's all I need to do to get my engine going. I don't know if we're going to win. She has that right to not be harassed. She has that right to live a decent life, and if she has no money, to not be hiding on a train that's a supposedly a public transportation. So what we teach is if you are morally right, it doesn't mean you're going to win, but if you're morally right, morally right, not white, that's the only way you're going to win. You know what I'm saying? We are morally right, and the MTA knows it now. So stay tuned. Help us with the people who are struggling in Glasgow for climate justice. And help the Strategy Center and Bus Riders Union fighting for climate justice and black and Latino justice in LA as well. I promise you that's all for now. But thank you for tuning in to Voices from the Front Lines. We'll see you next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Please email us at eric at voicesfromthefrontlines.com or channing at thestrategycenter.org. Any feedback and any tips you have for future shows. As always, you can tune into our podcast at VoicesFromTheFrontLines.com or on Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Music, and anywhere where podcasts are found. With that, all power to the people. Too few to mention I did what I had to do And saw it through without exemption Way.